Hey, Ryan, welcome to the Good, the Bad, and the Nerdy Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Tom. With me again is Will and Bruce. Hey, everybody. Vegas, baby. Vegas. Vegas, baby. <laughs> for so money. All right, yes, we are covering from 1996, Doug Liman's debut as a director, starring a very, very unknown uh, guy named John Favreau and Vince Vaughn. We're talking about the movie swingers have your you get your own nightlife um one of the more uh i kind of bizarre films of the 1990s in that its history has a lot of like uniqueness now a lot of people used to talk about how goodwill hunting was those two guys wrote a movie because they couldn't find work and got a big success well these guys actually beat them to it uh so lineman favreau and vince Vaughn basically developed this film on their own with their own kind of money yeah these guys had done like bit parts and stuff for a while floating around like rudy's the most like significant thing they were both in prior to this and yeah, that's that how movie. they became friends was they were on the set of rudy yeah they were on the set of rudy um i think they'd actually been you know they're from the same area so they run into each other before but they were both cast in small parts of rudy and uh you know favreau before this had also been in like pcu and playing like the you know the Another example of a guy who's way too old to be uh, a, a stoner college student, uh, but um, it was you know they had been finding bad work, so they made this film kind of loosely based on their own experiences and their own sessions like Vegas and stuff like this. They financed it very tiny money and managed to sell it to an independent, you know, sell it off, and it became a huge independent hit. This is 1996. By the end of you know by the end of 97, both these guys have big movie deals and. You know, like Favreau's on Friends for a while, Vince Vaughn's in The Lost World Jurassic Park. And, you know, their careers for a long time kind of bounce around from doing good things and bad things. Fortunately, Favreau figures out I should be the director and becomes a very successful, I mean, we're talking probably one of the top five highest grossing directors of the last decade, and right over the last two decades. So uh, for just for historical purposes, this is the beginning of that. Now, I think we should also point out that in the early 90s, there were basically three things to try to say you were an, an artiste. You could start your own band, you know, a garage band or whatever, like either be metal or grunge or whatever. You could write your own independent art, uh, comic or you could make your own independent film. So these were like the three tropes of what people were trying to do back then. So you were either trying to make your own music and you know, put it out in your own little indie mixtapes or whatnot. You were getting, uh, uh, like I said, you're trying to make your own independent comic books or you were getting cheap you know, cameras and trying to make whatever movie you could make. And we're talking movies, not TikTok videos. Oh yeah. No, but I mean, this is the golden age of that shit. Um, yeah. I mean, you've got Reservoir Dogs, which I know was a little studio, but it was also super shoestring. Uh, yeah. You pull, you pull that right into Clerks. Two years later, you pull that into Swingers. Like, uh, there's the, also the, the, Kids. I mean, the, yeah. yeah. I mean, that was another independent so film. Many of these that were good movies made with like minimal money and minimal studio. It was a, yeah, like uh, it, it was a technology flip, I think, where you could just get camera work without millions of dollars involved or something. I, I'm not 100% sure why like 90 to 98 was such a glory time for being able to go out there, max out five guys' credit cards and shoot a film. Uh, uh, I, I can tell you, actually. Yeah, go ahead. Camcorder, uh, camcorder technology, v- leaps and bounds, leaps and bounds in the nineties. Like, oh yeah, you you could you went from having to have this big bulky thing that maybe used a crap VHS tape 
to the to the the very tiny cameras with high resolution for the time. I mean, not I mean any cell phone today outstrips them, but for the time, you could get decent camera work for cheap comparatively, especially compared to what it had been, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what really enabled this thing. And also, you had a lot of film departments were stocking up on old equipment that was still good, but they got it cheap and it could be loaned out. And so you just had this explosion of independent. And this is the proto YouTube era because YouTube didn't exist. Like they're no. getting videos online in 1996 was a nightmare. You could do it, but it was really hard. Right? Yeah, we're talking quick time files for like 45 seconds. I mean, it's not. Yeah. And and then it would take three hours for you to uh, get it all available just to watch uh, and CD. I mean, you know, it's also time for you know CDRs and you know, I mean, yeah. the technology was available. Also, uh, rise of the DVD burner. Like mm-hmm. DVD burners started. I mean, they weren't quite um, as super cheap as they are now, but like you could burn your film to DVD now. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and uh, essentially uh, in a couple was, of years, anyway. I, I know yeah. I had one in like ninety nine. Yeah, and uh, you know, block there was a blockbuster in every town, and then of course you have your independent video. So of course there was a demand for lots and lots of movies because people everybody's renting movies. There's no streaming, so you have to go to the video store and get whatever they got. So uh, a lot of these smaller companies would just buy up everything they could get and you know start shipping stuff out because there was a market for it. You know, a, a videotape to rent back then, if you were going in the rental business, it'd be like a couple hundred bucks to buy the rights to rent three copies of this particular movie. And if you're charged, you know, like $4 a rental for a one night deal, you make a lot of money in it. Uh, there was a lot of money in these low budget movie in the, in the rental market. And also we also had, you know, there was also time of the art house cinema was it becoming a bigger thing. You know, people, there would movie studio, like the big studios like uh, Regal that owned all the theaters would open up an art house theater in a smaller market area because there was like a market for it. They knew, all these films could play, even if they weren't that good. There was a another option for it to be marketed, which was you know chat rooms. You could, uh, you know, the internet was actually put pu- uh, pushing this, and you had places like uh, magazines like Entertainment Weekly, which just shut down you know, as a print magazine, but would hype this stuff like crazy. You, uh, Rolling Stone, all of them would push these independent films, and this was not the you know the final edge of this is kind of like the middle curve of that crest, you know, uh, but uh, yeah. And I think, you know, crack, you know, clerk is probably the definitive one where he sold his comic books and maxed out 12 credit cards. These guys went around and got some small funding from a few other people, you know, in the case of say uh, reservoir of dogs, Tarantino sold some scripts and got, you know, Harvey Keitel to agree to uh, co-finance the film. So there was, you know, they tried the old fashioned way. These guys literally just got some people to write some checks, just like say Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell did for evil dead. And made a movie, and it it hit this festival circuit, and managed to actually, you know, get some traction. And you know, there were a lot of films back then that didn't. You know, they kind of came and went. You, know, you hear about all these indie duds or these films that were supposed to be a big hit at Sundance and nobody saw. Uh, this one actually did pretty well. Um, so I guess we can kind of talk about this film. Um, it's a weird one in that it's. I've said this before. This film is not really a movie as much as it's almost like a sitcom plot. Uh, in a lot of ways, it is. Um, I mean, you could have made a miniseries out of this. Uh, I don't think it would have been a very interesting miniseries. Personally. No, there's not enough material. I, I, I think uh, the format is all right for it. It's, 
but it's 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 a sketch. It's not. It's a slice yeah. of of this one guy's life. It's meant to paint uh, Mike uh, Peter Mikey as a bit of an everyman in a weird way, but it's also very particular to the period. So, like, it is about this place and time and making fun of this place and time. Um, so I I feel you when it it's thin. It's thin. Yeah, it's, but it's about the charm. It's about the charm of the performances. It's about the little jabs. This thing is just crammed full of little jabs. Like I gotta say, at the time I was, you know, saw this on a date in the theater, and at the time to hear someone call Tarantino a hack in their movie was holy. I like I spit yeah. popcorn. Like I could not believe they had the balls to do that. Yeah, we're talking in their little bitty budget movie. He's a god, even though he's only made Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, but those right. movies were everywhere in the late, in the mid to late nineties. I mean, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting a Tarantino analysis, you know? Yeah, or a ripoff. It'd just be like Carter, like dishing on on the Reservoir Dogs shot, and then deliberately mocking that shot. <laughs> doing it yourself for the with the you know in this context of like giving the same drama to these dudes going up into the hills to get laid um i i, I kind of still admire it i will say yeah. uh, that like and, and i'll say there's a certain fight clubness to this thing where you're not meant to really like the opinions expressed by Vince Vaughn as Trent and, you know, other dude bros. Like, you're not meant to really, like, even in the 90s context, it's like, yeah, yeah, they're, 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 they're sexist bordering on pickup artist. But, like, you do have a hint that, like, first, the film is mocking that. It's subtle, though. And I, and yeah. I think the problem is, is that the thing you remember is Vince Vaughn's just being charming as fuck in this character. And, you know, frankly, just this is perhaps a thing he just carried on his damn smile. Um, like, you can believe he pulls off the pickup lines because it's Vince fucking Vaughn. Yeah. Um, and uh, it doesn't age well because, like, yeah, those those pickup artist lines he's using, like, yeah, those are worse when you think about them. Like, even though in, in the moment, like, Mikey calls those out, he doesn't really not go along with it. He's kind of admiring of it. So it's one of those things where, yeah, the film isn't in the corner of this is a great way to treat women, but it's just so likably put that it, it, it you know, it makes it look cool and fun and no harm done kind of thing. Yeah, so it, just, it didn't care. age well. Yeah, there's a carefree attitude. Trent is not a bad guy. He's just... Ah, he's sketchy. He's living, I, but... day. he's living literally for the day. You can tell the way he acts. Uh, meanwhile, Mikey is stuck in the past. It's, the, uh, it's that whole, like, you know, you're in your early 20s. You don't know really if you're happy with what you're doing or you don't care about the future. And that's kind of what this gang is. It's like yeah. these... These are all guys who they're trying to make it in Hollywood, you know, like, you know, Mikey's trying to be a comedian or a writer, you know, Trent's trying to be an actor, but they also want to, they don't have a lot of money, but they also are trying to make them whatever they can to say this is the best times of their lives. You know, a lot of films around this time had that same premise, just these guys, and we should point out, nobody shot Vegas a lot of movies in Vegas were usually kind of sad or depressing around this time period. You had Casino leaving Las Vegas all around the same time. This is the one that makes going to Vegas a cool thing. This is uh, the well, one. okay, let's 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 break that down because that's a pretty oh, bold no, statement. Everyone talks. <laughs> no, they make it also pathetic, but funny. But uh, I honestly, 
true to my experience in Vegas, I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of really weird looking old dudes. Like, uh, yeah. Anyway, oh, continue. Oh, well, I was gonna say I, I've just recently returned from Vegas, so <laughs> I can give you a you know a ground eye man on the street view of the Vegas experience as portrayed in this movie. Because I've been to those places. I mean, this was filmed in the Fremont, uh, at least the interior shots. And I've been to that casino. I've been the guy who's worried about putting enough money on the table and being really cringy <laughs> and not understanding how things work and trying to play off as being cool and failing horribly. So, I've, I mean, I see myself in John Favreau a little bit here, at least in the context of that scene, not in the context of I'm a sad sack who is being dragged along by Vince Vaughn. Uh, so... But like he's like, you gotta wear the suit. You gotta wear the suit. I've I've said that. I've been that guy. Um, yeah, you, know, you want to look like you belong there. Yeah, I only I'm only gonna bring three hundred dollars, but I'm gonna put it all on the table because I want to look like a big shot. I mean, that's yeah. I've that his whole performance is concentrated cringe, and they are not making him look cool. The old guy that they sit down next to, <laughs> with the two hangers on, that guy was supposed to look cool. The old, the the older lady who hits the blackjack and is super happy about it, and they're all, and they, you know, she looks like she belongs, even though she's arguably far more naive than either of the two other characters. That they look awkward and out of place, and it's deliberate. It is a deliberate send up of taking yourself too seriously, you know. Yeah, and, they are not the Rat Pack. And in fact, once once Trent discards the whole idea of trying to look at it and just goes for his his uh, typical I'm just here to pick up women thing, he succeeds beyond anyone's wildest dreams, despite his terrible pickup lines and bad attitude. You know, <laughs> I mean, that whole sequence does not make Vegas cool. It makes certain, you know, having it makes having the right attitude about Vegas cool. Yeah. And these two guys, Trent has a little of it. Mike has none of it, and it is painfully obvious. Yeah, Mike is little. Uh, Trent brings Mike around partially to see if he can get Mike's lay, but more importantly, because he just needs he's the he needs him as the backup. He needs somebody to make sure he doesn't go too wild, but more importantly, just to see, uh, kind of give him some kind of extra perspective. He, you know, it, basically, if I get too drunk, he'll drive me home. That's kind of the take I, well, I've always thought about this relationship. At the time, like literally walking out of the theater in 96, uh, my ex at the time uh, said she thought that it was perhaps the sweetest representation of, I, I, albeit crippled, male friendship she'd seen on the screen. Because these guys, in their stupid call-each-other-bitch-every-five-minutes way, do actually care about each other. Like, Trent in his heart, would like Mikey to get back out into the game. Like, he feels that that is the healthy, good thing. He is endorsing it because he wishes Mikey to be uh, whatever his vision of the good, weird though it is, is. <laughs> you know, money. <laughs> um, he wants that to be true yeah. for his friend. Um, and, and, you know, the, 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 the quarrel with Sue, like, all of that resolves with, again... For this, the kind of character they're punching at here, with a surprising amount of actual humanity. Well, I mean, let's let's break down Ron Livingston's character, Rob. Right? The yeah. film opens with Mike talking to Rob about how sad he is, and and Rob giving him some heartfelt life advice. Right? 
Um, is it correct advice? Probably not. But in the context of the film, it is clearly, I care about you and I want you to, to succeed in whatever it is you're doing. But I also kind of want you to just move on because you're harp, you're yep. harsh on my buzz. I mean, <laughs> that was the sincere, that was the voice of the character doing his level best to try to help. And then later yeah. on, you see Rob doing the same thing, even more heartfelt as Mike is, you know, wallowing in his own crapulence, you know? I mean, it, it, it I, I, Ron Livingston plays my favorite character. Uh, the yeah, only character who has, Ron Livingston's character is also the one who's actually the most reckless. You know, it's who, true. It's true. Yeah, I mean, you know, Mike literally has my favorite line. Didn't you see Boys in the Hood? Now one of us is going to die. I mean, it's. Yeah, I mean. I mean, I've been in that mo situation where I swear I almost said that exact phrase to somebody who picked a fight with, a, you know, I'm like, it's. We all have these friends. We have these friends that somebody's the party person, somebody's the morose person, or mad about the world. Somebody is the. It depends on what mood he's in. He's gonna be the really great guy, or the wisdom person, or the one who's the most destructive. So that's you know you got these three tropes. You know, a good comparison is train spotting. I was thinking about this. When I was watching this. I was like, yeah, this is train spotting is. You know, a good, you know, you can kind of break it down. You know, they're not doing heroin, but that's, you know, that's, that's the point. Like, these are the same tropes. These friends, one's your guy you will do anything for. One's the guy you wish would shut up sometimes. And the other guy's like, he's great to have around for specific reasons. Yeah, I mean, that is absolutely true. Um, Trent is arguably a better human than Sick Boy. Oh, but, uh, well, most, most, <laughs> most. People and things are better humans than Sick Boy. <laughs> Except Begbie, because Begbie's even worse. Begbie, man. Begbie is worse. Yeah, I'll just worse. say, if we're anybody, like, uh, Trent is probably more Tommy, unfortunately. And I can, you, mm. I, Trent's, you know, uh, does not have a great uh, 21st century. You, you can just see he's going to do something dumb real soon. Or dumber than he already has. And that's, you know, Mike's kind of in that bit where he sort of is... And I kind of worry. I they don't say it, but I think they worry that he may he could have had a drug problem in the past, and trying to make sure he's not falling into his demons. You know, they don't. You know, they dance around all these things that they don't bring up because they don't want to bring this up because other people have recovered this in other movies. So they're just trying to cover just the general malaise that Mike's in. And I think that's you know the cringiest part of the entire movie we can get to is of course the uh, the answering machine sequence. Which which oh. answering machine sequence? Uh, you know, when he calls that one girl more. Oh, uh, I, I was I was going to say, because at the beginning, there's also an answering machine sequence where the answering yeah. machine is talking no, to all him. Of that, but, <laughs> but the, yeah, but those that answering machine voice takes me back. I had one of those fucking things, that exact goddamn and model. So I remember I. it. So did I. My dad had it and gave it to me when I went to college. <sighs> yeah, yeah, I mean, no, the, 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 the cringe. So there's two cringes I'll put in here. There's like the cringe that's intentionally there. Like that scene is cringe and hard to watch. Like you're just wanting to go, no, no, stop. Yeah, oh, you want to reach through the off. screen and grab him by his scruff and say, stop being an idiot. It's just, it's like, and you know, he's like, he wasn't ready for any of this. And Trent, made, they made the mistake of not of just letting him try to do this on his own. It's, which is pathetic. You think a grown man can handle this. A lot of grown men can. That's <laughs> so. This yeah, doesn't. But... That, it's cringy beyond cringy, and it, it doesn't hold well. But at the same time, you're like, okay, this is what this guy would probably do, which is bad. 
right. unfortunately. So I feel that I feel better about that than I do about the pickup artist stuff of like be rude to women because that's what they want, which in the universe of the film is is rewarded. It is absolutely rewarded yeah. a bulk of the time. Although I will say at the end when he's actually meeting um, Heather Graham, like that one girl is not having the stupid shit. <laughs> she looks so pissed. And I do love the way that looks. Um, that that looks good. Um, now, which film hit the, hit the ground first, Train Spotting or this? Same year. Yeah. Uh, Train okay. Like early '96. This was the, late '96. But because the, they were both the nightclub sequence had shots that really echoed Train Spotting or vice versa. But if they're too close together, it, it has to be a coincidence. Yeah. It, but it, like, it definitely is a coincidence. But I think it it's that weird bit where train spotting didn't really make a pressure in America until late 96, the same time as this film had versus say, you know, I was in, I was in London in 96 on a, on a high school trip and you know, everywhere it was train spotting posters everywhere. Like that was like the buzz film. And, you know, people were talking about it over here, but they didn't really release it over here. Uh, so when it finally got a minor release toward the end of like 96 swingers had was at the same time. Like Will, did you see this at UT as well, or was or was I the only one who saw it at the, screen, at the UC? What swingers or, or yeah, swingers? I never saw swingers until like yesterday. Oh okay. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I I mean I I lived swingers, man, oh, Vegas, never... baby. <laughs> I'm, no, um, you know, so when I was in, uh, so while I were in college in the late nineties, like I was in the film committee and we uh, we booked this one. We had a pretty good turnout for this film. And it was like, it's just one of those indie films of that time period. Everybody, everyone's told you got to see Swingers. And you would either, you know, it, it was either going to be the independent theater or you have to wait to get the one copy at the video store. Yep. The Tara was, down in Atlanta. This place wasn't, I mean, Swingers was hard to find. People don't understand that it was easier to find a copy of Battle Beyond the Stars than it was to find a copy of Swingers. Yeah. Um, because it, it really was a low talked about i mean a low push film like it just kind of... and it's weird because it made it i mean for its budget it made a giant pile of cash yeah like this thing yeah. was no, shot but it, uh, on... it had good rep like i know i heard of it i didn't just happen to, to take a date out to the Terra that night and this is what was playing like this was a film deliberately sought out so there was enough buzz at least in a major market like you know in town atlanta there was enough buzz yeah. and the Terra had it and um i think another place had it too there were two choices if i recall correctly yeah yeah, I yeah. Mean, it, it had enough buzz that i had heard of it in 97 uh enough to say i'm not going to go see it because <laughs> Uh, I mean, this is where I kind of level with you guys. This is not my kind of film. Like, this is the kind of film I bounce off the most. Uh, you know, incredibly thin slice of life uh, stories that don't. I mean, there are exceptions. I mean, Clerks is arguably the same kind of film, and I love Clerks. Uh, mm -hmm. But in general, this kind of film is not the. I mean, it, well, it's not a lot. Is this, but it amps it up. Clerks is this. It's it's so thematically similar in terms of the story, uh, but it's this, but it's amped to eleven, and it's far more farcical. Clerks, you know, gets right. insane. Yeah, I um, I prefer so I, I prefer the farcical like take on this yeah. sort of experience. And and this this isn't to say that this isn't funny. Uh, it has its moments. I mean, we've already talked about the the boys in the hood joke, which is great. A lot of the jokes, though, did not age well. A lot of them are definitely dated because it's. I mean, this is 
we we watch so many of these movies that are very very unique time slices of their day, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is absolutely one of those. And they invented slang. We should point out this slang was not common. Like this, they literally came this stuff up of themselves. So the beautiful babies, you're so much, that's all this movie. Like they had their own. Right. This was not like. But a, let me just let me yeah. just go ahead. I started making notes of things I said for years. For for years, I said, "Hang on, Voltaire." <laughs> uh, I said that to people for years. Um, I kept saying this place is dead anyway, man, when it was clearly not every time, like I would always say that <laughs> for years and, 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 and occasionally I would go on, you got big fucking claws and fangs and she's just a little bitty bunny. I would say that too. So like, this is workable shit. Like you can, I, I, I absorbed all of those and used them for 10 years. And I still, to this day, will say Vegas, baby Vegas. When I just want to give blind enthusiasm notes to something. Like that's still in my lexicon. Oh man! Um, but and I, that's we. Should, but yeah, they made this dial. They made all this up. This is their stuff. This is not like hipster lingo back then. They invented this hipster lingo that uh, you know its legacy stuck around for quite a long time. Like sitcoms quickly started copying it. I remember I was watching Spin City around the same time, and you know Michael J. Fox. I guess trying they're trying to make his character hip by having to make. You know, make that you're so money line to in the episode, and the guy's like, "What are you talking about?" Oh, I saw Swingers the other night. I mean, it got name dropped by a lot of people because it had a buzz. And like I said, you know, it, Vince Vaughn went from this movie to Jurassic Park to The Lost World, which is not a good movie. His character is not in the book; they invented his character for this movie because Spielberg saw this and wanted him in the movie. It's like it's such a weird thing. Oh well, I mean. He's just ridiculously charismatic. Like, I, this is his peak in terms of just lighting up the screen. Yeah. Guy and, had a magical 24-year-old self. Yeah, and the thing is, hilariously, he got, like, the worst parts for, like, a, for like five or six years. He was in big movies or small movies, all bad, 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 bad. And then finally, like, in the mid-2000s, he, he was able to let them do comedy, and his career completely took a 180. Like, you know, once he did stuff like Anchorman and Wedding uh, Crash. They yeah, Wedding out- Crashers is sort of what I was thinking. Yeah, but the point is, like, his career was constantly, like, he did a bunch of these, you know, the remake of Psycho. He was not, him as Norman Bates, he's a good actor, but unnecessary film. His performance is kind of forgettable because it just, that's, it wasn't, he's not, he's a comedian. He's, or he has very comic charm. Having him play Norman Bates, not the right choice. Um, but that's how Hollywood was like, we're going to have him play all these weird, creepy indie characters because we think he's got real like dramatic tension oh dude's, no. dude's a comedian and yeah. like a super charismatic i mean you could almost say he exudes a certain amount of robin williams vibe <laughs> yeah except yeah it's it's, it's a little bit back. like not not that... not with the impressions but just the the he walks into a room and everybody notices and lights up and not you know for good or for ill not you know yeah he can talk up a storm and it's you want to listen to where he's going with his stories. Uh, and, There's a reason yeah, he's on the poster, yeah. man. <laughs> There's yeah. a reason he's on the poster. Yeah, you, it's, yeah, it's only him on the poster. The rest of the guys are. There are a couple of promotional stuff with the other guys, but it's entirely him, and he's the secondary character. It's Mike's story. It, Trent- it, he's secondary, but he's incredibly important to the story yeah. because right. he represents. Uh, you know, he's a thematic opposite to Mike, yeah. and those are important. 
in storytelling. Is he the angel or the devil on Mike's shoulder? That's the, uh, I mean, that's... he's kind of both. If really exactly. Like, he's like, he's looking out for Mike, but the me- it's sort of like he wants Mike to go to the best place Mike can go, but he's going to take him on this route that's probably pretty sketchy and through a few alleys. Because why not? Okay. His, judgment, his heart's in the right place. His judgment is not. There you <laughs> that's go. That's what you've yeah, got he, there. Yeah, he's the Rick and Mike's Morty. I mean, and he's like, also like they they make a point of it nicely with the diffusing the boys in the hood business like that he's charming and and uh like clearly sort of alpha boy they have that little again cringy not on purpose cringy at the time that was meant to be funny but i'm like yeah Yeah. homoerotic humor played for like denigration let's not anymore but i i i don't forgive it because in the 90s that just happened a lot more still and it was not as uh, it, yeah damn it we were dumb well, um we were, anyway well, the point is we were in a different place anyway so those jokes are already kind of ar- archaic even by yeah. 90s and i think but that's i think that's there's the other thing is they're trying to act like they're the rat pack so they're got right. this attitude of not early 1960s style that's you know they're trying to dress like you know sinatra they're trying to dress like dean martin they're trying to you know they're throwing they're trying to act like they're the rat pack so of course they're going to have these attitudes that are completely out of place yeah, and, they and get some praise for trying this whole thing the anti-grunge you know vibe in a lot of ways the movie is mocking them for taking these attitudes as bruce oh, said earlier yes, i mean this is this is a comedy, despite the fact that I didn't laugh a huge amount. It's still supposed to be a comedy. Uh... So I think that it, a lot of the humor, first of all, Favreau's just like that sometimes. His humor is always that sort of uh, laugh at my failure to do the thing. And yet, I actually don't like that approach generally because you sort of want to like his character, but he's just such a, a horrible schmuck. Like, you end up disliking him for his pathos yeah uh, and it doesn't and the, it's not as like while it paid off marvelously and it came to me the first viewing out of left field and i'd almost forgotten about it so it still caught me like when he makes his like i'll have coffee in the age of enlightenment joke like you're like oh you schmuck and then there's just the awkward silence as no one says anything to acknowledge his joke that's very fervro and if it had stopped there it would have been just i would have been like no please stop making that that's not as funny as you think it is but when the waitress comes back with like it's just like a big kiss because it punctured all the pretension of it so uh that one i really that still just makes me laugh she's so good it's entirely it's not even like she's accentuating it she's literally just passing by hang on i'm busy yeah uh Let's talk a little about Doug Liman. So this is his first film, and you know he go, went on to after this did Go, which I think we all agree is a much more enjoyable film. Uh, Go is I a, love is, that movie too. Go is yeah. a better film than this uh, by a country mile. Um, the humor's kicked. Uh, so this movie is almost too subtle for its own good in a lot of ways, whereas yeah. Go sort of takes a slice of life, but there's so much exaggerated spin up in all the little facets that you see. I mean, I will still to this day shout, it's not Amway at people just randomly. <laughs> Cause <laughs> God, that makes me laugh so fucking hard every time I see it. Um, yeah. I, I've always ha- had the situation where I need to sit, whisper, go to somebody just to get them out of like, I was like, am I in the, are they in a bad situation? Go. I mean, like I said before, that's the bit. Jay Moore had this another period where he was trying to be, they're trying to make him the big guy. And that's, I think his best movie 
Yeah. Oh, so, so him, that, him, and that's them. another thing. I think it helps that he got away from that crew because I think with it, it with his career, it goes all over the place. So after he does go, he does the Born Identity, which is you know a pretty groundbreaking action film. Followed then by Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which has his own notoriety. Uh, but I would I I rewatched it a while back and it actually holds up pretty good. And then he has something like Jumper, which is a mess of a movie, but hard not to. I mean, I've watched it like several times because I actually find it fun. So he, and then you know, just a couple of years ago, he does Edge of Tomorrow, which I'll be afraid to say might be one of the best science fiction movies of this century by a mile because of how much <laughs> of what they pull off. And I legitimately I, don't know anything about that film. You never seen Edge of Tomorrow? Never even heard of it. Okay, so uh, that's the one where Tom Cruise. It's the there's been an alien invasion. Oh, then I've seen and, I've seen Tom Cruise, so I wouldn't have watched it then. Yeah. Yeah, it's the idea. There's been an alien invasion, and Europe's basically been taken over. So um, Tom Cruise's character, he's basically like essentially a guy who joined for the army for the publicity. He's supposed to be like a press corps guy, but a military general makes him go fight on a on a campaign where they're going to storm Normandy in these exosuits because this is the future. They're in exoskeletons trying to fight these gigantic alien, like like Starship Trooper kind of aliens. In the middle of this battle, which he has no training for, he's basically uh, being sent out to be kid is a uh, you know fodder. He actually kills this one alien that sprays blood on him, and next you know he suddenly finds himself the ability to go back in time a whole day. And the movie begins this whole thing where the original title is going to be Live, Die, Repeat. Because every time he gets killed, he goes back in time to one, uh, like 24 hours. So it becomes this whole film about him constantly trying to go back in time and figure out what he needs to do to stop, you know, win this battle. And, I'm, and uh, Emily Blunt is this other character who had the same ability at one point. She figures out who he is, so they, but she doesn't have the power anymore. He just does. So it becomes this whole bit where he's constantly also trying to make sure she doesn't die in this battle. It's really neat it's like one of the better like it is a bit of a video vibe to it but it's also it's just a really 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 cool. that is a big shame though because um i have this thing where i have an allergy to tom cruise it's it's cool bruce i got your back here so it's actually a it's actually an adaptation of the uh manga all you need is kill so oh okay i think there's also an anime of it but i'll hit that i'll hit that then but it's actually. But no, I mean, it's just I. I don't think we've ever ever had a, had an occasion to mention my Tom Cruise allergy. I come out in hives. Um, no, and I, I understand. Trust me, I have that same high for a few other actors. So uh, Tom, uh, I, I says about Tom Cruise, he can pick a really good part. So if you your issues with him are fair, but occasionally he make he's made a lot of really good movies too. So you kind of have to throw a grain of salt when it comes to him. So. Uh, it's uh but yeah that's i would say lyman's best work this is an example you can tell he's trying to become a good director but i don't know if it's the material okay. that no 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 doing I, i'm gonna give this for debut this is magnificent because he had the balls to trash talk uh the reservoir dogs and tarantino and to while it's more admiring about scorsese has the characters in panel like discuss the the shot at the copa and the pain in the ass it was to light it and then he does after the conversations he does both shots and he does them in a way that just literally mocks the original shot 
beautifully. Like it's making so much fun of how the shot was used by putting it in this trivial situation. And it's, and you know, the glamor of the Copa entry where there were all these people like, Hey, you and this, and there's like all these pristine white and you go to the back of the Derby and it's just like, there's their mixing machine. And one guy's talking Spanish. Adam's like nobody in here. And it's hilarious. Oh, it's such a, and, and they take the same path. Like I, if you watch them side by side, I bet you a dollar, like, except they go upstairs to down, like there's a couple of inversions, but otherwise they did it. They just yeah. did the same fucking shot. Yeah. And I give them credit for that kind of tribute. I don't call it a ripoff, much like a tribute. Cause I mean, no, this, it's, it's, it's parody. He is yeah. mocking the shot. I mean, it's the same time, like a few months later when Boogie Nice comes out, they do the same thing. Just, they go like, even like, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson goes way overkill for like the, epicness of like this is the shot this is what we can do with the camera here they're kind of like here's what we can actually do with a really low budget camera now you know there's a couple bits you can see where there's a boom shot in the in the uh boom mic in the shot and it's just you know i i and i know that's they couldn't afford to reshoot some stuff so but i did i said for i think there is something here but i also feel like he wasn't ready yet but when you see go and maybe it's because he just got a better crew and he knew what he was, you know, he had more confidence. Well, a little like, bit more money helps. I mean, a little more money helps. A little more the money budget helps. on this was 200, according to Wikipedia. Yeah. 200,000. That is, that is a shoe damn string. Like, oh, yeah. Clerks Perfect. was more budget. Well, okay, no, they had no. more budget posts. They went with nothing to start. Yeah. But, like, they ended up spending more money on Clerks. Is yeah, that, Clerks was $35,000 because it was, and that's why they shot on black and white. Uh, but the, what happened, the budget went up because the uh, music rights got a little more expensive when they added like a uh, soul asylum in there. But uh, and that's yeah. the only reason the mo- budget went up. And, that you know, the fact the music video for that movie cost more than the actual budget to shoot the movie. Uh, but now, see, that's the thing. And like I said, as we're talking about this is all this film basically brings up all these questions about independent film of this time period. So it's. And I think that's the key. Like, this is not, I mean, I wouldn't call this a great movie. It's a movie to watch, but it's also, I think we can all agree, this is the nerdy film of, of like, 1990s kind yeah. of. Like, yeah, I mean, I totally feel you on not enjoying the film. Like, don't get me wrong. If you either like the sort of Woody Allen-inflected John Favreau, com- Favreau comedy, I can never say his name properly. Favreau. Uh, Favreau, thank you. Uh, if you like his comedy, okay. Um, it's, you know, uh, but I think the, the more like ginned up versions of this sort of humor in like office space or in go or in clerks, like that's better. I actually agree with you. All three of those films are better films. Uh, but I don't think this is bad. I, I, I would never put this in bad. Uh, so I think nerdy is where I would go with it. Yeah, I, I'm the same, but I, it's not a bad movie, but it, it does not, I would never use it. It's not the Oscar film that some people have said it is. Oh, no, this is not an Oscar film. So, yeah, I'm basically on the same track. I don't like this movie. It's fine. There's a couple of funny bits. It's well made, for especially for the budget, and it's revolutionary in for its day, but it ain't my movie. It's not a movie I like, but there's so much in here that you could analyze and look at and talk about that I have to put it in the nerdy category. Yeah, and yeah. I, I say also, I mean, we, we didn't even bring up the swing dancing, but this was the first one we really have swing dancing. It kind of, you know, which, you know, if you're around in 1997 and 98, there was a brief period where swing bands were the big hit thing, not just in Gap commercials, but there was a short, you know, like, 
spurt where it was like, you know, Cherry Poppin' Daddies and um, Squirrel Nut Zip. You know, those bands were all suddenly the big thing because uh, punk rock had got, I'd already gotten to the point where, well, it's not just, you know, grunge. Oh, no, it's punk. Well, it's punk too popular. So let's take the electric down and go straight to just flat out jazz. And, you know, this kind of predates, you know, postmodern jukebox popularity too. So it's, this film kind of has its own kind of weird legacy for other reasons. I sort of feel that subculture kind of just keeps going. It's sort of like Scott inflected in places like, yeah. I, and he gets to the postmodern jukebox. Like, I don't feel it ever, like it had a big bubble in the, in the mid nineties there, but I think it, it, I think that it's always been a slight scene. Like I, I probably could go find this in Atlanta maybe still oh, like oh, 20 I mean, 30 years later yeah i mean i can tell you in knoxville there's still swing you know nights at some places every every week it's just yeah. swing music never died for some people and that's you know that's good i'm glad that, that part of its legacy it kind of started a whole new genre of like uh, or restarted a music genre yep all right guys uh before we get to it uh before we wraps up is there any last things you guys want to bring up before we uh finish this up uh, I think if someone likes theater, I mean, likes movie making, if they're you, Tom, I think they want this. So if you're out there and I, I, I hear I, I may have swayed a few young uh, film students to the podcast. Um, God help me. My, I'm corrupting the young. Um, that's, what, that's what they got Socrates for. That's what they got Socrates for. I'm taking that hemlock. But um, <laughs> if you guys do this, like if you hadn't seen this, like a, a film student should would be what I would say. I would concur on that one. This is definitely a film to you know, look at. There's some techniques in here. I think also, you know, just like say a movie like El Mariachi, it's a good example to see a up and coming director kind of at the beginning of their uh, techniques trying different things. You know, because uh, a lot of other directors in the indie scene went into bigger action stuff, just like Lyman. So, you know, Robert Rodriguez is uh, you know, a good comparison, and the same thing: uh, how to make a movie on a low stream budget and get something out of it. You know, there's the argument that it's it's not about the movie; it's that they got something made, whether or not you liked it or not. They finished, they made it on their own, and made a lot of money in the process. Uh, Will, you got anything else you want to bring up? No, I think you guys covered it nicely. Uh, Vegas, baby, Vegas, Vegas. All right, and. Uh, so, folks, thanks for listening. This has been the Good, the Bad, and Nerdy Movie Podcast. If you have any comments, please hit us up on our Facebook group, fans of the Good, Bad, Nerdy Movie Pod. Also on Twitter, Good, Bad, Nerdy Movie Pod. Uh, Will, don't you have a podcast? Oh, yeah. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah. Uh, episode 3 just released, uh, CODIS Reviews Everything Podcast. You can find it right here at Anchor. You can find it on Spotify. You can find it on Google Podcasts. Uh, Pocket Cast, if you have that. Uh, still trying to get on Apple. They still hate me. Don't know why. Uh, can't figure it out. So, you know, I'm hoping yeah. that maybe I'll show up there someday. Uh, I'm kind of hoping I'm already there, but I just can't tell. What did you review? F3, what's the review? Uh, a board game called Tiny Epic Dinosaurs. Nice. And trust me, board game podcasts are a th- uh, reviewers, so that's a thing. So, well, I'm yeah, not You're, you're going to get more death threats than me, Will. <laughs> it was a positive I hope you review. liked it. I hope you liked it. Episode two is Girl Scout cookies. I'm just saying. Oh, <laughs> Have I ever mentioned the time I got paid to watch porn in a basement with Girl Scouts? No. Do and, I need uh, good night, everybody. <laughs> folks, 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 please, 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 please. Uh, and if you're going to go to Vegas, and just make sure you, your buddy does not have access to the phone. And, and if he has, make sure to bring an extra condom, too. 
Amen. Tarantino just cribs from Scorsese. <laughs> yep. That is accurate. <laughs>